0: Amen. And you may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. And if you're lacking a Bible today, we've got plenty for loan or for gift if you don't own a Bible. So just uh, slip up your hand if you need one. We'll uh, make sure you get one. We'll also project the words on the screen. Acts eighteen twenty four. And we're going to read all the way down through chapter 19, verse 7. Hear the word of God this morning. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord... And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it had happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you for the word. <clears throat> thank you that you have not left us in the dark to know your will. Thank you that you have not left us to in the dark to figure out all about you by ourselves, but that you have told us everything that we need to know about you and about us and about life in the Bible. And so, Father, I pray that as we listen to the Word, that, we would, that you would help us to focus on your Word. This is your message to us this morning. This is you speaking to us, Lord. And so, with that in mind, I also pray for Pastor Steve, that he would be guided by the Spirit, that he would be speaking your words, that he would get the message across to us that you want us to hear. Let, let Steve decrease, let God increase in his vision, in his preaching and in our
1: hearing, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Did you all have a good week? Glad everyone slid on in here this morning for services. Uh, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Um, a lot going on and with all the weather and everything, but it's been good as well. And I had mentioned, I sent out an email to a lot of you asking to send me pictures of your kids playing in the snow so I could make a, a countdown out of it, and I only got a few, so I'm not going to do it this Sunday. I'm going to wait and do it next Sunday. So um, you guys send me pictures of your kids in the snow. If you didn't take pictures of your kids in the snow, there's still enough out there to go out, find a spot in your yard where there's still two or three inches sitting there, and stick your kid in the middle of it, take a picture, and send it to me, all right? You know, life is filled with transitions. You think about someone growing up and... and um, maturing, a child. And they come up and they hit different periods of life that we know are transitional periods of life. Maybe it's that terrible twos where they begin to discover for the first time some independence and they want to test how far they can take that independence. For us it wasn't two, it was around three. It was the terrible threes I guess. and Or maybe it's uh, uh, another, maybe it's that period between when a, a child's no longer, they don't feel like a child anymore and they begin to want to do more grown up things and that time that we call adolescence, maybe that's a a transition time that your kids are going through right now. How many many of you have your kids, you have kids going through some sort of transition time right now, okay? Now for some of you who have a child every year, you're going to have that for a long time. So you've got transition for the rest of, you know, until... Well, for a long time. But even after we get out of childhood, there's, there's transition times. There's, there's, there's that, um, I think when you transition f- from your 20s into your 30s, there's something that sort of changes there. And, of course, D's not here this morning. This is a perfect segue for D. And D experienced a major transition this week. And, uh, of course, if you all haven't wished D happy birthday, wish him happy birthday. And I'm not going to tell you how old he turned. You just ask him, all right? Uh, he, he had a birthday this past week. And so there's major transition times in our life. and But oftentimes, those transitions come with a certain amount of confusion, maybe even turmoil, maybe even tension. And that's just natural. It also happens in our spiritual maturity. I was looking back um, every now and then. I've, I keep journals. I've kept a journal ever since college, and I've been more consistent with it sometimes than other times. But I look back at my journals every now and then just to kind of Look at what God did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, and I see some of the things I, I wrote and I just laugh. And it's like oh, I'm so, an idiot. All right? And I see that there were periods where I was going through spiritual transitions and I wasn't as mature as I needed to be. I, I look back at some of the sermons I wrote right when I was in college. And I really think, boy, I am glad that God has matured me and brought me through some transitions since that time. But we experience transitions, and sometimes those involve tension, even confusion. And even in the church, what we have in this passage that we read today is just further evidence that the book of Acts is being written or it's giving us the historical record of a period when, the, when there was transition. This is a major transitional period in history from Old Testament to New Testament, from Old Covenant to New Covenant, Jesus has come on the scene. He has, he has carried out the Father's will and done His ministry and died on the cross, rose again, has ascended, and and now He has commissioned His apostles and His church to go out and to spread the good news all the way to the ends of the earth. But with that comes a certain amount of, of transition and, and and confusion sometimes between what's. What, how do we do this and we 've seen some of that with with the Gospel transitioning to the gentiles and well, how do we how are the Gentiles supposed to worship God? Should we make them worship God the way we did in the Old Testament with jewish law and so we 've seen some of those transitions already be addressed here in the scripture and really this passage of scripture that Demon read today kind of just further highlights that there were still parts of the world where there were people who were seeking after God who were god fearers who We're still in transition. They didn't quite understand what all was happening or what all had happened. And so we have this little section of scripture that Luke gives us today. Now this is a difficult passage to to try to preach, to be honest with you, because it's a historical narrative. Luke's just giving us a, a background of what's happening here. And so I want to draw out a couple of principles of discipleship from today's passage uh, from the first part of the passage today. But really, I'm going to make this a two-part sermon. In the second half of the passage, I'm going to look at this, the 12 um, disciples who um, who apparently were not saved and, uh, and and the transition they went to and get a little bit more into the theology of the difference between an Old Testament believer and a New Testament believer, an Old Covenant believer and a New Covenant believer and and talk a little bit about that. But today I want to focus mainly on this first part of the passage that deals with a guy by the name of Apollos. Now let's recap a little bit here. We are in a series called He Reigns, um, the Sovereignty of God and the Gospel in Acts. And this is the, we're just going through Acts verse by verse. And uh, if you remember that uh, last time we were studying this, Paul was in Corinth. Uh, He was in Corinth. He's on his second missionary journey and he made a vow apparently in Corinth. And this vow was apparently a Nazarite vow, meaning he needed to get back to Jerusalem to complete it. So he, he leaves Corinth, he leaves it in the hands of, of the capable, of his capable ministry partners, Timothy and Silas. Heads off to Jerusalem, stops in Ephesus, quickly begins a ministry there in Ephesus and brings with him Priscilla and Aquila, who he, I believe, leaves in charge of the, of the ministry there. Matter of fact, from 1 Corinthians 16, 19, we know that they had a church in their home in Ephesus. So apparently Paul gets there, he helps them get started And then he heads on to Jerusalem to complete his vow. He goes to Caesarea, up to Jerusalem, to the church. And then to Antioch, where his home church was, to share with them what all God had done on this second missionary journey. And then he heads right back out, visiting the churches of Galatia and Phrygia on a third missionary journey. So what Luke does now, Paul has taken off on his third missionary journey. And Luke brings the scene back to Ephesus. It kind of gives us a parenthesis here. ...of something that happens with a guy by the name of Apollos before we join Paul again. And Paul is going to, get, going to come back around to Ephesus as well. So what we have here is we're introduced to a guy by the name of Apollos. And Apollos is a very important man in Scripture, a very important figure in the early church. Um, he becomes uh, a very important evangelist, teacher, preacher, pastor in the early church... This passage gives us the most detail we have about Apollos in all of Scripture. But we know he was very influential, and we learn about his influence uh, when we read 1 Corinthians. When you read 1 Corinthians, you see how influential this man um, was. And we know that he heads to Corinth because at the end of the passage we read today, we read that he heads over to, to, uh, it says Achaia. Well, really that's the province, or that's the region where Corinth is. And Corinth is the capital of that region. So he heads to Corinth and becomes a major teacher An influencer in the city, in the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2 and following. Paul's actually uh, getting on to the church in Corinth for their division. But if you look at this passage, you can see that Apollos apparently was very loved and very important in the church there. 1 Corinthians 3, 2, it says, Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy... And strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And this is the passage I want us to really focus on in this text. Is I planted, this is Paul speaking, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Paul's getting onto the church in Corinth for their division. Okay, one's saying, hey, I like this guy. Other says, I like this guy. Okay, one of the reasons that many churches in America don't have a multiplicity of elders and multiple teaching pastors who preach is because we have so many fleshly Christians and we have that exact thing happen. Well, I like this preacher and I like this preacher. And uh, I'm going to show up on the Sunday that this preacher's showing. I remember we joked after we merged. I mean, it was just a joke. We joked that when we made the sign out there for Harbin's Community Baptist Church, we put a little flip sign on it with the face of me or the face of Roger or the face of Deemer, and we just flip it so it'd be showing each Sunday when people drive by. Oh, Steve's preaching this week. Deemer's preaching this week. Now, it was just a joke, but I think that really that's the way people are because we're just like the Corinthians. We're of the flesh. And we like certain preaching styles, teaching styles, or whatever else. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the body is called to have multiple teachers, preachers, and so, anyway, in Corinth, this division-type thing going on, but we see from this passage that Apollos was very important. Paul planted the church, and Apollos comes right back behind Paul and waters and helps grow this ministry that Paul had started. So, Apollos was very important to the early church, and God had gifted him greatly. Let's just look at this passage here and see some things about Apollos. First of all, we know that he's, he's a Jew. He's a Jewish man, therefore he has a... Uh, the natural ability to minister to the Jews To go into the synagogue and minister to the Jews He's from Alexandria Alexandria is similar to Athens It was a major educational intellectual city of the day Of course you probably know kids If you've um, done your, your school work You know that Alexandria had one of the world's largest libraries He was very educated Which means he was a Hellenistic Jew Familiar with Greek philosophy Okay, So he was a lot like Paul Very equipped to minister to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. At some point, he traveled to Ephesus from Alexandria. The Bible says here he was very eloquent. That word means he was a man of words or a man of ideas. Basically, what that word um, tries to uh, connote is that he was a very well-spoken and intelligent man. He knew his Bible. Verse 24 says he was competent in the Scriptures. And rarely do I not like the ESV translation, but I don't like it here because really the word competent could be translated mighty or powerful. And for what we know about Apollos, I think that's what Luke was meaning here is that he was powerful and mighty in the Scriptures. Uh, it also says that he was in, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Verse 25. Now what does that mean? What does this term, the way of the Lord, mean? Well, In the Old Testament, that term's used a lot. You're walking in the way of the Lord, or you learn the ways of the Lord. But uh, usually when Luke refers to the Lord, either in his gospel or in Acts, he's referring to Jesus. So he was instructed in the way of Jesus, at least to a certain degree. Matter of fact, we know that he was because it says that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus in verse 25. It also says in verse 25 that he was fervent in spirit. That means that he was passionate. He's on fire for God. We know that he was bold because in verse 26 it says he spoke boldly in the synagogue. He wasn't shy. Okay? And like I said earlier, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, this was a bit confusing when you read the passage because it says he taught, spoke, the things about Jesus accurately, and then it turns right back around. Luke turns right back around and uses the exact same word, the word accurately, when he says that Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. (laughs) So here he is. He's learned the way of the Lord. He's preaching Jesus accurately. Yet Priscilla and Aquila show up and have to take him aside and teach him more accurately. And so it's a very interesting passage what's happening here. He's accurate about Jesus, but apparently he needed to be more accurate. And therefore, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside. So, what's going on here with Apollos? And what's going on with this next passage of Scripture about these 12 disciples? As I mentioned, this is a transition period. So, lots of questions come into your mind when you read this text. Is Apollos saved? If he only knows a little bit about, some about Jesus, is he saved really? If he doesn't know everything accurately? How about these 12 disciples? They're called disciples. Are they saved? Um, What about baptism? What's this that they were baptized in the baptism of John? Both of them, the reason I showed the, the, the video about John the Baptist is because that's part of the transition here. John the Baptist was the last of the prophets. The Old Testament prophets end with John the Baptist. And then a new covenant begins. John the Baptist comes and prepares the way and proclaims there is a new, the Lamb of God, Jesus. He is now the one that, he, that, that, he, that John's whole ministry was pointing towards. And yet, Apollos knew about John's baptism but didn't know about the baptism of Jesus. And these other 12, perhaps they were even apostles, of, I mean, uh, disciples of John the Baptist. They only knew about John's baptism as well. So apparently there's the, the teachings of John... Were being had been had spread out outside of Palestine, outside of of the Jordan uh, area, and had spread out into other parts of the world. Maybe some of his disciples had had left at a certain point during his ministry, and the teachings of John had been taken out. But not everything was understood, and perhaps everything that John pointed toward wasn't understood by all of his disciples. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of that next week. I want to talk more about the transitional period between. Old Testament believers and New Testament believers next week and get a little bit more into the theology of that. Actually, not next week. Next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday, so we will observe Sanctity of Life Sunday next week and it'll be the week after that and then we'll pause from our Acts series and we'll talk about that later to, to go into a, uh, an emphasis for this year. Anyway, so there's this transition going on and there's these two sets of people here. I think Luke puts these two stories together for a reason. Okay, first we have Apollos. Now, I think that Apollos truly was already a believer, meaning he was already saved. I think Apollos was already saved in this passage. Uh, There's a few reasons I believe that. First of all, it says he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and I believe that the Lord there is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It also said he taught accurately the things about Jesus. It doesn't say that he just taught accurately about the Christ, generic, the Messiah. It uses the personal name of Jesus, it would be one thing if he had taught accurately about the Messiah, just generally. The Messiah's coming, the Messiah's going to be a suffering servant, the Messiah, and he teaches accurately about the Messiah. But this text doesn't say that. The text says he was teaching accurately about Jesus. So he knew something about the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. He knew something about the purpose of Jesus Christ. He knew that Christ was the Messiah, and apparently he'd already put his hope and his trust in. And his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe he was with John the Baptist when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or when John said, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Regardless, he had an accurate understanding of who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he was the promised one. And he had placed his hope and his faith in Jesus. The other clue to me here in this text that he already possessed saving faith is the fact that even though he knew the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance, he wasn't asked to be rebaptized. It's very interesting. They don't rebaptize Apollos in this text here. At least we don't have any record of it. Maybe he was. I don't know. But the other 12 are rebaptized in the next text. So I think what you have here is an example of a group of people exemplified by apollos who are true believers who have put their faith in jesus they know something about the christ and they put their hope and their faith in jesus alone for their salvation maybe they've received john the baptist's baptism of repentance and now they see the fulfillment of that in christ jesus and that's that's represented by apollos he's saved but there's others like these 12 who i'm not going to get into a lot of detail today about them but i don't believe they were saved I don't believe they were putting their hope in the Christ because when Paul comes to them and says, no, 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 the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance pointing towards the one. In other words, they were not actually pointing their faith toward the Christ. Their faith was in what they had accomplished by getting dunked in the water by John. So I think there's a difference here between these two groups of people, but they're all a result of this transition between the old covenant and the new John MacArthur, in his commentary, says that he believes that Apollos was a redeemed Old Testament saint. He was saved but was not able to be actually called a Christian yet because he didn't have a full understanding of Christ yet. Now we'll deal more with this text about the Twelve next week. But like I said, we are in a period of transition. Let's look more at Apollos here. What is it that Priscilla and Aquila corrected? That's the other big question in my mind. so how inaccurate was he? Because it says that he was taught in the ways of the Lord and that he taught Jesus and spoke about Jesus accurately. And then it turns right around and says that it wasn't apparently accurate enough. So what did they correct? What did they um, help him with? Perhaps some commentators think perhaps he didn't know that Jesus had died. So maybe that's the case. He doesn't know that Jesus is actually... Paid the price and the, his, the sacrifice is final and complete. I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe Apollos, with his connections in Alexandria and all this, at this point in 52 AD, nearly 20 years later, wouldn't have a clue about Jesus' death. Maybe he wasn't aware of Jesus' resurrection. I don't believe that either. Maybe he wasn't fully understanding the ascension. Or maybe he didn't fully understand what happened on the day of Pentecost. I think that's more likely the case here. He doesn't understand that... Christ has now given a great commission that the day of Pentecost has come. that He has now baptized us with the Holy Spirit. And now the baptism that people receive by water is, is a representation no longer of just a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of identification. You're identifying yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so I think these are the things that Apollos is being he's being explained these things by Priscilla, And Aquila. I think he's there in this synagogue and he's saying Jesus is the way. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's doing the best he can. But he doesn't understand yet exactly the full ramifications of what Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit has meant to the church. So he is accurate, but not accurate enough. So this is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. Is looking at how Priscilla and Aquila correct, how they help make his doctrine more accurate, and I want us to see there's a tremendous humility on the part of the disciplers, Priscilla and Aquila, and on the part of the one being discipled. As I mentioned earlier, I look back at some of my st- I can look back at some of my sermons, <laughs> and I can see that I was teaching Jesus accurately, but not accurately enough, okay? There were some serious errors in some of my early sermons. I I cringe when I read some of them. And I wish, I really wish, I'd had someone come up to me and say, hey, let me take you aside and explain some things with you and help you through some things. I didn't. I had to, to, to wade through that myself. Never really had anyone. It wasn't until I got to seminary that I, that I and the more I studied and the more I learned from some of the professors there that I was in error in some of my understanding and interpretation of certain texts. So um, I wish I'd have had someone. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't have been humble enough. I was pretty cocky as a very young preacher. Maybe I wasn't humble enough. Maybe that was the problem. Uh, I w- maybe I wouldn't have taken it well. So I'm going to look today at I've called today's sermon, Filling in the Blanks with Love, The Case for Discipleship with Humility. Kids, have you ever played the game Mad Libs, okay, where you got this, you got a story and it's got blanks in it, and you you know, the the person doing it will say, you know, give me a plural noun, and you give them a plural noun, and you fill it in, and then you read the story back, of course, you don't know what the story's about, and so you're just putting words in, and then they read it back, and it's just all, it sounds so funny, right, and it doesn't make any sense, and it's just, just for fun. See, I think that's kind of the way Apollos is right here. He's got blanks in his understanding. And Priscilla and Aquila come in, and they don't want him to have goofy answers. <laughs> they, don't want his, they want his faith to make sense. And so they come in and they say, hey, we're going to help you fill in the blanks. We're going to help fill in the blanks of your understanding of Jesus Christ. So that's what's happening here. And I, I want to say, I'm calling it filling, the blanks with, filling in the blanks with love. The case for discipleship with humility. And the first thing I want us to see is to look at Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila showed humility in how they approached, corrected, and discipled Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila showed tremendous humility in how they approached, corrected, and discipled Apollos. The first thing we see is we see that their humility shows through in their choice of venue. Okay, we see it in where they decide to, to handle this thing. In verse 26 it says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they... Well, the text doesn't say that they opposed him before the others. Got in his face. No, 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 don't listen to that guy. It doesn't say that they shouted him down. It doesn't say that after the synagogue was over, they start going around saying... He is way off. He is totally messed up. Don't. Tell you what, come listen to us. It's not what they did. That's not what they did at all. It says they took him and explained the way of God more accurately. They took him, meaning that they took him aside privately. They took him aside privately and said, hey, Apollos, it may have been something like this. They invited him to their home. They apparently had a home in Ephesus. They go up and say, Apollos... You know, we're, we're so blessed by what you were talking about today. We would like to talk to you more about these things. We are followers of Christ. Come come to our home. Let's talk about these things. And maybe when they, Priscilla and Aquila got home, they kind of strategized How are we going to talk to him about this? Are we going to, you know. And they talk to him. And they, come so, and they do it in a private setting. And they do it in a loving setting. They took him and they treated him like who he was. I believe, like I said, that he's saved. They treated him like what? A brother. We're going to have a lot of emphasis this year on family. And not just family. I mean, yes, I will, we are a family-friendly uh, church. But not just your immediate family, the family of God. You see, there's a bigger thing that your family points toward, points to. That your family is, a, is, a, is, is to shine, uh, to exemplify. And that is the family of God. So we're going to talk about family This year in a lot of different ways. And we'll launch that in a few weeks. But one of the things that concerns me is how do we talk to our brothers? Now, you're saying, well, in my family, the siblings, they shout at each other. They shouldn't, though, because when I correct my kids, especially when they treat their brother or their sister in just a terrible way, one of the things I say is you don't talk to your brother that way. Don't talk to your sister that way. I'm not getting on to you guys, okay? They got real still all of a sudden. Okay, y'all are doing fine, okay? But you're family. You're related to one another. You look out for one another. You help each other. You support one another. You build each other up. You don't tear each other down. And so that's what Priscilla and Aquila, they take him like a brother, they didn't use this opportunity to exalt themselves, and show how much more they knew. You think Apollos, yeah, he's bold, he can speak well, but he doesn't know everything. Come listen to us. I mean, they could have used it as a church growth strategy. Hey, don't listen to Apollos. Come listen to us. Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, our house. They didn't. They don't do that. They don't exalt themselves. They don't use the opportunity to humiliate a brother who was weaker in his understanding. They didn't humiliate him. They didn't demand the spotlight. They took him properly and probably into their home, maybe even over a meal, and they explained things better. Because the issue wasn't to prove they were right. The issue was to help a brother. You see, I think that's the problem in the church today. We love to feel good about ourselves, and we're right. I got good doctrine. You don't. You're wrong. And our motivation is to prove ourselves right and to vindicate ourselves, and we just mm, feel so good and puffed up, but we don't have any thought about what we're doing to our brother, and we don't care about building them up. Matter of fact, we want to see their ministry fail, because they don't got it right. We do. That is wrong. That is wrong. That is not how brothers treat each other. There are brothers out there with some bad theology. I'm saying brothers, not African-American brothers. I'm talking about all of us, brothers. There are people, friends, family, brothers, sisters that have some bad theology out there There. Doing some bad things in their churches. There's some crazy stuff going on out there. And it stirs me up too. And it gets me frustrated too. But I guarantee you most of the time when I try to point out their faults, I'm not trying to lift them up and build them up. I'm just trying to exalt myself. And that's the problem in the church today. One of the problems in the church today. There is a way to correct our brothers and sisters in Christ. That comes across more as a confrontation designed to shame them or to exalt us, and that frustrates me. I think we need to be careful going out just looking and hunting for errors in others. It it can become a hobby. And I confess, I don't watch TBN anymore because I found myself just watching it because I got joy out of finding error on the tv oh man they got that wrong yeah look what look what grudem says in his theology book eh? and i found myself enjoying tearing down my brother and that's not what we're to be doing so it can almost become a cult in and of itself just to hunt for errors in others in the church this tendency in the church to exalt ourselves and our maturity in our doctrine at the expense of others by shaming them and showing them how doctrinally backwards they are is a dangerous thing. Now let me say, little parenthesis here, there are heretics out there. There are people who are not teaching the gospel. They've got the gospel completely wrong. And heretics should be c- confronted and exposed. But be careful who we call a heretic. Because the scripture has some very, very serious words to say for those who stir up dissension within the family of God. Really serious words. And I fear that. If you fear God this morning, then you need to fear what the scripture says about stirring up dissension within the body. You need to take that seriously. And we need to be extra careful when we start labeling people as heretics, as false teachers. And be careful. Because that's what Apollos, that's what Priscilla and Aquila could have done. Heretic, false teacher. He doesn't have it right. Come, Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, here. They didn't do that. There are clear core gospel doctrines that must be believed and must be upheld for someone to be a real Christian. You realize there's only really a few heresies out there? They just get repackaged. Or there's little offshoots off different heresies. Okay, The heresies that that rose up during the first 200, 300 years of the church are the same ones that are around today. And those heresies seem to come back over and over and over again. Make yourself familiar with what true heresy is in the church. There's a series, I love it, it's a series of emails, I'm going to start sending them to you guys, that Mark Driscoll's church sends out, it says, know your heretics. They send out an email once a month with a new heretic listed, know your heretics. (laughs) So you can know what heresy really is. Because just because some church does things in a manner that we consider dishonoring to God doesn't necessarily mean they're a heretic. We have to be careful not to stir up dissension within the body of Christ. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That's the other aspect of it is that sometimes we get into this, this, this mode of looking and trying to show the faults in others. We are in essence saying, I don't have any faults. And, and Paul, Paul, if you can't get much bolder with heretics than Paul. Paul says, brothers, family. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.3, again Paul. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is actually dealing with people who aren't Christians. (laughs) That God actually may help people that are truly heretics know the truth by the way we oppose them with gentleness. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, what should we do? We should pray for our brothers, pray for the brother in whom you find a fault. Pray for them. Humbly ask God to expose your faults. Humbly ask God to expose your motives. Am I exalting me? Be careful to prayerfully consider whether or not we are shaming or humiliating our brother. Shaming is not good discipline. Parents, the best way to get your child to obey you isn't to shame him in public. It's to correct him. Sometimes that correction needs to be strong. Sometimes it needs to be more soft. you correct them and you do it mostly in private. You shame them in public, you'll stir them up to wrath and anger and turn them away from God. It's the same thing in the church. Don't shame one another. You don't shame. Imagine if Priscilla and Aquila had shamed Apollos that day. Do you see the fruit that comes from Apollos' ministry after this passage? That's shaming. What would it have done to the fruit? Don't you find it interesting that Paul writes these words to the church in Ephesus? Ephesians 4.1, the church in Ephesus. I love how the, the gospel, I mean the, the, the epistles dovetail with Acts so well. Here's what he writes in Ephesus. Knowing that there's this confusion, these transitions and everything. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With what? Verse 2 of chapter 4. With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is... Now think about this in the context of this passage today. There is one body, one Spirit... And you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all things and through all and in all. Priscilla and Aquila exemplify these passages of Scripture by showing humility in the venue they chose. They also showed humility in the manner of their communication. It says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. This word word simply means they carefully expounded things to him. does not say they rebuked him. It says they carefully expounded things to him. They can't control how he's going to react to their explanation. He could have said, get lost. What are you talking about? Who do you think you are? He didn't. But they didn't know that, though they carefully explained to him the truth. They didn't fear the fact that he's a more eloquent man. They didn't fear the fact he's a more learned man. He may know much more scripture than they know. They don't fear that. They don't fear the fact that probably this man coming from Alexandria is on a much higher social level than they are. They don't fear that. They carefully, lovingly explained the way of Jesus more that, more accurately. And both of them did it, by the way. How much healthier would the church be if we did things this way? How much healthier would individual local bodies of Christ be but the church in general be if we handle things this way now let's look at Apollos real quick Apollos showed humility in how he received the correction and discipleship of Priscilla and Aquila this man like I said knew a lot of scripture probably knew more than Priscilla and Aquila he's mighty in scripture he doesn't just know it he knows it well He's passionate. He's bold. You know, one of the complaints that, if, if there, this, this happens a lot. This, I think it's the way God wires people. I've noticed in churches I've been in, when you have a pastor or preacher who's very bold and articulate and eloquent from the pulpit, a lot of times he's horrible one-to-one. And it's really hard to get to know him. And it's really hard to have that one-on-one connection with him. Okay, and sometimes the guys that kind of stumble through things from the pulpit are the ones who are just wonderful pastors and, and, and relational one-on-one. And I look at I look at Apollos' skill set here, mighty, passionate, and bold, and I see the bold preacher type. Who, and when you've got that sort of wiring and that sort of personality, sometimes it's hard to take any sort of correction. But you look at Apollos here, it doesn't say that he in any sort of way pushed them back. Instead, I believe from the text here that he receives this with a humble and receptive spirit. You know, he knew things pretty accurately. He could have shrugged them off. He could have said, ah, I'm mostly right. I'm mostly accurate. Get out of here. Quit nitpicking. Quit nitpicking. Just forget about that. He could have just shrugged them off, but he didn't. I think sometimes our learning might keep us from learning, which is my last point here on Apollos we see in fact that he didn't let his learning stand in the way of his learning meaning that sometimes we think we know it all don't we and it stands as a barrier between someone helping us be more Christ-like because we think we got it down we think we know it all I think sometimes having been on a seminary campus who else has been on seminary some of the other guys in here deemer Having been on seminary campus, man, that academic environment, not learning. And sometimes there's just an arrogance that goes along with that. And you know what? When I was on seminary up there on campus, I didn't do most of my work on campus. I only went there for a little bit. But I remember having conversations with guys, and they would just talk so arrogantly about how they would handle a situation And I said, you've got to get in the real world. Get your hands dirty with real people, with real pain, with real baggage, with real struggles, with real marriages falling apart, with real children who won't obey, with real death, with real things going on in your life, and then let me see how arrogant you are. Because sometimes our learning can just get in the way of God making us more Christ-like and allowing us to learn more. But not with Apollos here. He humbly takes what they have to teach him. The moment we think we've arrived is just evidence of how far we have yet to go. The moment we think we've arrived is simply the evidence that we have a long way to go. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every month, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Again, this is Paul. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul in Romans says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. If you think you're all that, get ready. God can quickly show you that you're not. 1 Corinthians 13, 9. Paul says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This church in Corinth had a lot of problems. A lot of factions. And Paul, I don't think, tries to explain all of them away. But he says things like this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know what Paul's saying is, you know what? There's childishness out there in the church, and we're all going through this transition of maturing in Christ. And you know what? You know, and I know, but we all only know in part. So let's stop these factions. He apparently received, Paul, Apollos apparently received their correction with grace and humility. What a model we have here for discipleship. We live in a day and age when we love to fight. We love to fight when we think someone's not right about something. We love to fight with someone who might not be right about all things about the Christian faith. Even if they're not essential things, we like to fight. We like to show them that they don't really know what's going on. Let's stop showing each other up and start helping each other up. Let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. Let us edify one another and let us take care to how we build upon the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about how you build upon this body. And there's ways to build upon the body of Christ that is straw, hay, stubble, wood. And it's going to get burned up at the end because it wasn't about Christ's exaltation. It was all about you. And there's ways to build in the body of Christ with precious stones and gems. And that's the stuff that will stand the test of time because it was about exalting Christ and edifying the body, bringing glory to him in the world. Strengthening your brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you brothers, brothers, there's a reason the Bible uses family language but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. That's how a family works, right there. That's how a family works. That's how the family of God is supposed to work. Now, I'll just look at the end of this passage and we'll be done. Look at the fruit of humble, good, humble discipleship. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, okay, so he's emboldened for missions now. After he's been disciple, he's ready to go. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Okay, building up becomes contagious. The rest of the brothers, hey, let's encourage him. Let's go. Come on, Apollos we're going to send you off and we're going to send you a letter of commendation to show how important you are to us. They didn't send a letter of warning to the other churches. This guy's only partially accurate. Watch out. They built him up and they encouraged him and they sent him out. That's the fruit of proper discipleship. When he arrived, it says he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Now he in turn becomes a discipler. He greatly helps those and Corinth needed a lot of help. Verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Where does Apollos and Paul, where do they save their powerful confrontation for? They save it for those who are denying Christ. But within the body of Christ, they treat each other as brothers. There's time for bolder confrontation. I'm not saying that. Remember Peter, Paul confronted Peter to his face. There are times, but what was Peter doing? By his actions, he was denying we were saved by grace through faith alone because he was stepping aside and going back to acting like a, like a person who's under the law. And so Paul's, I'm not having anything to do with that. Stop it, Peter. But within the body of Christ, there is to be this loving, strong, yet encouraging correction when it's needed. What fruit Apollos shows in his life. Matter of fact, Martin Luther was convinced that uh, Apollos is the author of Hebrews. He may or may not be. There's good arguments both ways. But uh, if he was, what another powerful piece of fruit that came from this tremendous work of discipleship. Regardless, a mighty worker for the kingdom of God was produced through good discipleship. Good because it involved humility on the part of the discipler and the one being discipled. We can learn a lot from Priscilla and Aquila. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about these other group, these 12 people, as we look more at this transition period that they're going through. Transitions aren't easy. Sometimes transition inv- involves correction. But this is a great example of how to do it within the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I come to you and confess my own sin that I love to be right, I love to uh, be so convinced of, of my argument and the doctrine I hold that, that, um, that I like to elevate myself because of my knowledge. But God, that's sin. And I confess it to you this morning, Lord, and ask God that you'd make me more humble. Make me a person who knows how to confront sin in a humble way. And righteous way and knows how to confront differences maybe not even sin just simply differences in a humble and righteous way and God that's my prayer for our whole church I want Harvest to be a place where where people can come and worship and grow and be built up and where we can all be corrected because we're all coming in here with some screwy ideas sometimes we can be corrected in love within our family, the family of God. And God, help us to not just confine that to this group right here, but to understand that we are family members with other churches in our community, in our area, in our nation, in the way we confront them or the way we talk to them, Lord, about a difference that we might have theologically, doctrinally, whatever, that we are to do that like Priscilla and Aquila as well. So God help us, this requires so much discernment to know when is the time for bold confrontation of those who are denying the gospel. Because sometimes that happens within the walls of a church as well. So God help us to be discerning, to know how to handle differences within the body of Christ. But most of all, help us God to exalt you, to lift you up, so the world can see what the family of God really looks like. Be exalted this morning Lord as we sing this closing song as we get ready to go to Bible study. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.